Harvard Divinity School. Religion and the Legacies of Slavery, a series of public online conversations. Slavers and Slavery, a dialogue with descendants, March 6th, 2022. On behalf of Dean David Hempton, welcome to our fifth in a series of six webinars on religion and the legacies of slavery, co-sponsored by Harvard Divinity School, the Legacy of Slavery Initiative, and Harvard X. My name is Diane Moore, and I'm the Faculty Director of Religion and Public Life here at Harvard Divinity School. And it is my great pleasure and privilege to co-host this series with my friend and colleague, Melissa Wood Bartholomew, Associate Dean for our Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. On behalf of us both and our many staff and faculty colleagues who have helped bring this series into being, I wanna welcome the hundreds of participants who are joining us for this presentation this evening, representing over 80 countries worldwide. We are grateful for your presence. Tonight is the fifth in a series of six critical conversations building upon and beyond the work of the 2022 Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Report. In this series, we explore through the head and the heart what the academic study of religion teaches us about the tangled histories and legacies of slavery and racism here in the United States and beyond. These tragic legacies are alive and present in many forms as the news on any given day in any given hour devastatingly reveals. We hope that by gaining a deeper understanding of the complex power of religion relevant to historical and contemporary manifestations of racism and white supremacy, that this knowledge will enhance our commitment to reparative action and racial justice and healing in our own times and in our own context. Ultimately, these conversations are in service of advancing our vision of a just world at peace healed of racism and oppression. Before we proceed, we pause. We pause out of reverence. We pause to acknowledge and honor those who came before us, who were indigenous to this land, and the African and indigenous people who were enslaved in this country, including the more than 70 people of African and indigenous descent who were enslaved here at Harvard University as detailed in the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Report. As a descendant of Africans who were enslaved in this country, I am aware of the potential impact of hearing this tragic history. We want to remind everyone that as we proceed through these difficult conversations and listen to the exchanges, it is important to be attuned to what might be stirring up in us and happening in our bodies particularly as we navigate our emotions regarding ongoing manifestations of the legacies of slavery in this country. So please remember to breathe and take care of yourself during and after this session. We invite you now to pause and breathe with intention and to focus on your breath as we lift up the Harvard University Native American Program's acknowledgement of the land and people. We acknowledge that Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. 
We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. But for the stolen land and stolen labor, this country and this university would not be. Our acknowledgement of the land and people extends beyond words. It is expressed through our action and is connected to what we were doing through these conversations. This series is a part of the broader work stemming from our school's commitment to reading the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Report as our common retext this year. As we engage with this report, we are discerning our institutional actions for redress and ways to support the university in implementing its recommendations and even expanding upon them. And we aim to further our vision of a restorative, anti-racist and anti-oppressive Harvard Divinity School. This is sacred work. As I mentioned earlier, this is the fifth in a series of six webinars on religion and the legacies of slavery. Our first presentation was by Professor Karen King, who focused on what it means to recognize that Christian scriptures were formed in a social and historical context where slavery was commonplace. Our second webinar featured Professors David Holland and Catherine Jin Lum, who engaged in a conversation on religion, race, and the double helix of white supremacy with a focus on Professor Lum's new book entitled Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. Our third presentation featured Professor David McCannon who explored the complex lives of several of Harvard Divinity School's original benefactors in a presentation entitled Harvard Divinity School and Slavery, Family Stories. And our fourth presentation just two weeks ago featured Professor Terrence Johnson uh, who was with us to speak about memory, history, and the ethics of reparations. And tonight, we're honored to welcome Professor Tracy Hux and her guests, Dane and Constant Perry, whom I will now invite to turn on their cameras while I introduce all three of them. Tracy Hux, Professor Tracy Hux is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Africana Religious Studies and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She is nationally known and esteemed scholar of Africana studies and American religious history. She has served most recently before joining us, lucky us, she just joined our faculty this past fall. Uh, but prior to that, she was provost and dean of the faculty at Colgate University, where she has been the James A. St uh, Storing Professor of Religion and Africana and Latin American Studies. Professor Hux has conducted research in several countries, including Brazil, Cuba, Nigeria, England, France, Trinidad, Jamaica, Kenya, and Tanzania. She um, has, uh, she's the author of numerous books and articles. Uh, like many of our presenters, if we were to list them all, we would end, run out of time in the webinar for no conversations. So again, it is just an incredible honor to have Professor Hux with us on the faculty here at Harvard Divinity School. We are greatly enriched as a result. She is joined this evening by two guests. She will begin the conversation first with Dane Perry. Uh, and then a little later in the conversation, um, they will both welcome Constance Perry, but let me introduce both of them now. Dane Perry grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. He and his wife Constance traveled the country screening a documentary that they helped create called Traces of the Trade. 
And they, uh, in relationship both to that documentary and their own work, they facilitate conversation on racial reconciliation. Dane served 30 years in the financial services industry in Boston. And previously he served as deputy director of the Massachusetts Council on Crime and Correction and acting director of the Crime and Justice Foundation, a nonprofit, both nonprofit organizations which promoted reform in the criminal justice system. And Constance Perry grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. For more than 20 years, she managed, designed, and implemented programs for at-risk youth and adults at the municipal, state, and national level. Constance was a self-employed national consultant for 12 years, specializing in training, facilitation, and on-site consultation services to community organizations of a wide variety of types. We welcome all three of you for this important conversation tonight. Um, and we look forward to hearing, hearing your words. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Diane and Melissa. Good evening. I welcome you virtually to the campus of the Harvard Divinity School for our discussion this evening, Slavers and Slavery, a dialogue with descendants, where we'll welcome Dane Perry and later be joined by his wife, Constance Perry in this discussion. And I wanted to say from the outset that not every institution in the United States nor professional school would be so bold as to engage publicly and openly over the course of several weeks in difficult dialogues regarding slavery, the slave trade, and its legacy. Diane, Melissa, and I are fortunate to work with the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, Dean David Hempton, who has modeled bold leadership in these discussions on the legacy of slavery at Harvard and has guided HDS in these challenging conversations led by courageous example. And I wanna show just a brief clip of Dean David Hempton engaged in this very work. Harvard University was directly complicit in America's system of racial bondage. From the college's earliest days in the 17th century, until slavery in Massachusetts ended in 1783. And Harvard continued to be indirectly involved through extensive financial and other ties to the slave cell up to the time of emancipation. In fact, slavery thrived in New England from its beginnings and was a vital element of the colonial economy. Colonists first enslaved and sold indigenous people, and they dispossessed and massacred native peoples through war. They also enslaved Africans and played a key role in the Atlantic slave trade, building a thriving economy based on an economic alliance with the sugar islands of the West Indies. This trade involved the provision of food, fuel, and lumber produced in New England for plantations of the Caribbean, where those goods were exchanged for tobacco, coffee, and sugar produced by enslaved Africans. Thank you, Dean Hempton. The legacy of slavery at Harvard is just one window into a larger history and legacy of slavery in New England. Many of you may have read the informative chapter in the Harvard Report entitled Slavery in New England and at Harvard, and also have joined my HDS colleagues on previous weeks of webinars in this series. We welcome this conversation tonight on slavery in New England with Dane Perry, 
a descendant of the DeWolf family of Rhode Island, who were active slave traders and the single most lucrative slave trading family in U.S. history. Dane's cousin, Katrina Brown, directed a powerful documentary, Traces of the Trade, which I've used for well over a decade in my courses. And it chronicles the journey of Dane and other family members from New England to West Africa and on to Cuba, tracing their family history in the slave trade. I wanna show just a brief clip of the documentary as they begin their journey from Rhode Island. Let's go to another clip from Traces of the Trade. When you and your relatives visit Bristol, Rhode Island, where the DeWolf family lived and operated their slave trade, in this scene, you're visiting with local historians. The more historians we talk to, the more sobering it got. Slave trade, you gotta remember, is not just a, a few people taking a boat and sending it out. Everyone in town lived off slavery. Uh, the boat makers, the iron workers who make the shackles, the coopers who made the barrels to hold the, uh, the rum, the distillers who took the molasses and sugar and made it into rum. So literally the whole town was dependent on the slave trade. All of the North was involved. All these cities and towns along the coast, Salem, Boston, Providence, New London, New Haven, New York, and the rural areas around them either traded slaves or manufactured goods or raised farm products for the slaves. Last fall, Dane Perry and I and his wife, Constance, symbolically met for the first time on a boat, a sunset cruise traveling across the waters of Boston Harbor. And that metaphor of the boat, of the water, is so relevant for our discussion tonight and to the study of religion. When we often imagine the slave trade, we think often of the auction block on land, but so much of the activity of the transatlantic slave trade was on the water. One renowned scholar and noted historian of religions, the late Dr. Charles Long, theorized that the water is an essential space for understanding the religious, cultural, economic, racial, political, and moral aspects of slavery and the slave trade. Dr. Long remarked, quote, on those boats coming across the water, there were Europeans and Africans on the same boat. They were on the same boat, but they were taking two different journeys, end quote. And Traces of the Trade, a documentary that Dane and his wife Constant travel nationally and internationally screening tells the story not of the descendants of the captors on those boats, but the journey of the captors, the abductors. We realize that not everyone in the audience may have been able to view the documentary in advance, so we wanted to share with you the first few minutes of the documentary and a brief interview with Dane's cousin, Katrina Brown. Katrina Brown is with us. She documented her roots in the film Traces of the Trade, a story from the deep north. One day, my grandmother traced back. I was in seminary when I got a booklet in the mail that she wrote for all her grandchildren. She shared our family history, all the happy days. She also explained that the first DeWolf, Mark Anthony, came to Bristol as a sailor in 1744. And then she wrote, I haven't stomach enough to describe the ensuing slave trade. 
What hit me hard was the realization that I already knew this. Knew, but somehow buried it along the way. What no one in my family realized was that the DeWolfs were the largest slave-trading family in U.S. history. They brought over 10,000 Africans to the Americas in chains. Half a million of their descendants could be alive today. A clip from Traces of the Trade, a story from the Deep North, narrated, produced, and directed by Katrina Brown. After the film aired on PBS's POV in 2008, she went on to found the Tracing Center on Histories and Legacies of Slavery to inspire dialogue and active response to this history and its many legacies. Katrina Brown now joins us from Washington, D.C., and still with us, MIT professor Craig Stephen Walder, author of the new book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's University. Katrina, um, take us from there. You discover, though you say you knew some kind of primal secret, uh, what your family, how significant the DeWolfs were in slave trading. It, it's in our family case, it's a bit of a stand in for the region as a whole because. Um, I heard things as a child, but I didn't allow them to sink in because it's so, um, it's basically cognitive dissonance, I would say, for white Northerners to think that we have any relationship to slavery because we're so much, I think, all of us raised and educated um, in our schools to believe the South uh, were the bad guys and the North were the Northerners were the heroes. So um, it was hard to comprehend and shocking to discover um, as I dug more into it. and. Um, because of this larger untold story of the role of the North, I decided to produce a documentary. And what we did was basically I invited relatives to join me on a journey to retrace the triangle trade of our ancestors. And um, nine brave cousins came with me and uh, we went to Rhode Island and then Ghana and Cuba where the duels owned plantations in that pattern that Professor Wilder was talking about of even after slavery was abolished in the North, even after the slave trade itself was abolished in the North, um, folks like the DeWolfs continued to be invested in slavery through actual plantations in the Caribbean, in their case Cuba, as well as through that carrying trade of uh, provisioning the islands and the American South. Thank you. So Dane, I tried to give as much introduction and context uh, to our conversation and I uh, wanted to, you to introduce yourself the way you introduce yourself in your workshops. Um, tell us why you decided to go on the journey with your cousin and also tell us why you decided to reveal this family history. Thank you, Tracy. And uh, it's delightful to be here with you tonight. Um, I met, saw Katrina after several years of not seeing her at her grandmother's funeral. And I asked her what she was doing these days. And she said, I'm making a documentary film. And I said, oh, what's it about? And she said, well, you might not want to know. And I said, oh, do tell me. And she explained exactly what she was doing and that she was going to be seeking cousins to go on a trip with her examining that history. And I immediately said, sign me up. Um, I saw it as an opportunity to do precisely what Constance and I are doing right now, even though Constance was not 
in my life at that point. So I had no idea that I would be doing it with her. Um, I grew up in Charleston. I was a racist kid in Charleston, but I've been involved in this work of trying to heal the nation for over 40 years. And this has been the, this has been the mission that Constance and I have been on the last 20 years. Why reveal this family history? Because it's critically important that we understand where we came from. Um, the efforts to squelch our national history that are going on right now, I think are terribly misguided. Um, we cannot heal as a nation until us white folks truly understand the history and how African-Americans have been impacted over the years. The person who has, I think, the best answer to that question is the former presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Catherine Jefford Shorey. And she said, once we understand the past, we can begin to understand the present our political realities, our challenges, and our relationships. And that's that's why we have to do this work. It's, it's critically important that we do it. Now, Dane, as part of that journey, you travel with your family to West Africa, to Ghana, and you go into the slave dungeons of Elmina and Cape Coast Castle. And I just wanted the audience to hear your cousin's reflections coming out of those dungeons. The thing that I guess strikes me more than anything right now is that we've talked when we were in Bristol and we were in Providence and we're listening to historians and scholars and we've heard people talk about, you know, um, you've got to place it in the context of the times and this is the way things were done and this is how, you know, life was. And I just, I sit in that dungeon and I say, um, it was an evil thing and they knew it was an evil thing and they did it anyway. And I couldn't have said that before, um, before tonight. What was it like for you, Dane, to, to be in Africa and then to move on to Cuba to the plantations of your ancestors? Being in Africa was devastating. Um, going through the, we went through two slave forts um, and go, going down through the dungeons where people were held captive in incredibly inhumane conditions. Um, and to get your mind into that, really allow your mind to get into that space and into the experience as much as we possibly could, what those people were going through um, was, was very, very difficult. Um, it, it, it challenged who you are as a human being, I think, quite frankly, because, the, because of the inhumanity that was clearly taking place. Um, Cuba was different. Cuba, um, we, visited one of the old plantation plantations and it was just ruins of the plantation. But we went through the sugarcane fields and 
got to understand what it was like in those fields and the intense heat down there doing the kind of work that the, the enslaved people were doing. Um, so Katrina did a remarkable job of immersing us as much as possible um, into the experiences that the enslaved were having, though there was no way we could enter that space at all. And I, I want to thank you and your wife, Constance, publicly for visiting my classes uh, last semester at Harvard Divinity School. As a result of this, one of my students, Reverend Kevin Ross, a student in the Master of Religion and Public Life program, asked you to participate in a memorial ceremony for the formerly enslaved woman, Harriet Jacobs. And I wanna just show uh, your participation in that memorial service and what you disclosed. James DeWolf and his extended family brought approximately 12,000 kidnapped Africans across the Middle Passage, making the DeWolf family the nation's most notorious slave trading family. My name is Dane Perry. I am a direct descendant of James DeWolf, the head of the largest slave trading family in United States history. And I confess that our family committed unimaginable sins and crimes against humanity with our direct leadership and profiting from the transatlantic slave trade. And Reverend Kevin Ross and my other students express gratitude for your class visits. Um, and some of them are probably watching this, this webinar. But with those class visits also came tough questions uh, that I wanna be able to pose to you. And one of them is at your family's peak in the slave trade, what would you estimate was your family's net worth? I have no idea what that exact number would be, though um, historical records show that James DeWolf was apparently the second wealthiest person in America. So it, it was extraordinary wealth at the time. And by and large, is there still significant generational wealth within your family? Um, not really, not really. Um, they were a bunch of rotten people <laughs> and they managed to go through that wealth very quickly. It was gone within three generations. Um, that they just spent wildly. There was a huge, huge lawsuit after James DeWolf died of different family members contesting his will and trying to break up his trusts. Um, everybody wanted to get hold of a piece of it and it was gone within three generations. One of the students uh, posed this question, should families like yours have a role in providing some financial as or asset-based reparations to Black family descendants? That's a very good question. Um, Constance and I do, um, do giving every year, um, trying to address some of the wrongs. Um, but that, that, that's, that's a very good question. I, I hesitate to say, yes, we should. 
Um, but uh, I, I think society, I think our society needs to make major steps in that, that direction with reparations. Do your other family members share your view and your sense of giving? I don't know. We don't share it. And I want to welcome Constance. You mentioned Constance, but I'd like to welcome her on. Thank you. Oh, welcome, Constance. And I wanted to put a question that may be on many people's minds on the webinar. Dane is a descendant of slave traders in Rhode Island and a descendant of slave owners in North Carolina and Virginia. What do you know about your own family history and how do you reconcile your family history with that of Dane's? Well, I certainly don't know anywhere near as much about my own ancestry as, as Dane and, uh, and his cousins. What I do know is that my mother's side of the family came from Virginia. My father's side of the family came from North Carolina. And I don't know anything about my mother's side of the family. I assumed that they were enslaved, um, but I don't know. My father's side of the family, I do know that they um, were enslaved. Um, I know I am a descendant of people who were enslaved. We can trace members of my family, maybe three greats back to the mid 1830s in North Carolina. Um, we, I also know that many of my ancestors were sold into slavery. We have their names. We don't know what happened to them once they left uh, a, the county in, in uh, North Carolina. Um, I know that, uh, that uh, some of them learned how to read and write. I know that some owned, uh, were um, uh, 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 carpenters and mechanics and owned a, a store. Um, but that's just about all I know about people who lived during during that time. The the my my story is 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 no different than so many African Americans, where we can only go so far back. Your story is similar to that of my own family. You know, same places, Virginia and and North Carolina. You know, what we do know is that my great grandfather was born enslaved in 1852. Uh, somehow he learned how to read and write. And in trying to teach other African-Americans, he was, there were two attempts by the, on his life uh, by the Klan. And he then flees to Bertie County, North Carolina um, and marries my, my great grandmother uh, who was a midwife and an herbalist. Mm -hmm. Going back many more generations than that, you know, very difficult. That's right, that's right. I and know that. My great great was a midwife as well. So thank you for remind telling me a little bit about your story. What was a midwife? And um, apparently my great great grandfather was taught to read by the people who enslaved him. My great great grandmother was not. Um, somehow they managed to raise their families and um, and do the best they could 
uh, with their life and tried to keep their family together as best they could. And we, we cherish those stories. Yes, we do. So how do you, Constance, reconcile, you know, that history, your family history with that of Danes? I'm grateful for what I know. Um, there's a huge gap. Um, that's just the reality. I, I um, you know, I don't, I'm glad that Dane is able to know what he knows. I, I wouldn't take that away from anyone because I know what it's like to have those gaps. Um, and I, there are times when I feel um, I'm jealous, I'm envious, and I wonder. Um, and I just, one of the things that I hope that we would be able to do at some point, we know the county where my uh, dad's family came from. We do have some records. And my hope at some point that Dane and I will be able to make a trip um, to Franklin County where they were from and, and see how much more information I, I, I'm able to get. I know that they were involved, they were recorded on a number of uh, census um, that were taken. Um, so it's, uh, but it's, 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 it's difficult. I feel like something's missing. Something's and, missing. And some would say, you know, how do you two make it work? You know, the descendant of slave traders and the descendant of the enslaved. Well, it's that four letter L word. <laughs> and I, L-O-V-E. I, I, I believe, so Dane and I are both Episcopalians. I'm a cradle Episcopalian. Um, my faith um, is important to me and has always been important to me. And um, I believe that Dane and I were brought together not only to share our life as husband and wife and that L-O-V-E word that Dane mentioned, but I also, you know, um, God has an interesting sense of humor. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what he was up to, but I think that we were brought together for a reason. And I think the visual image of seeing um, someone who's African-American who shares the story of being a descendant of people who were enslaved and Dane, um, a white man, who was a descendant of people who were not only um, involved in the slave trade, but who were enslavers in Virginia and North Carolina, that we were brought together to do exactly what we're doing. And I think that the visual image of the two of us doing that, I think our stories hopefully will help people to see that we can in fact have conversation um, and that we're able to do this work together. Um, and faith faith is at the core, I believe, of what we do and how we do it. You mentioned uh, the Episcopal Church, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your denominational affiliation uh, and the Episcopalian and slavery. Uh, you were present at the historic 237th annual convention of the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts on October 28th and 29th. Please share with us what happened uh, at that historic meeting. Okay. Um, a little background. Um, I have been, um, I currently sit on the Diocese of Massachusetts Racial Justice Commission that was formed three years ago. And I serve as co-chair for the reparations subcommittee. And it is the work of the reparations subcommittee 
um, under the umbrella of the Racial Justice Commission that put forward the, a resolution um, calling on the Episcopal Church um, to uh, do reparations um, uh, beginning um, in uh, 2024, 2025. And so that resolution that was submitted was on the table to be voted on. We had no idea whether it would pass or not. Um, it, when it came time to vote, um, they, the delegates were called on to um, vote in favor. And the, uh, they all had a, a piece of paper, pieces of paper, one green colored and the other one red. And when the vote was called in favor, there was a sea of green, a sea of green paper that people were holding up. And I looked around the room and I'd never seen anything like it. And then there was a call for no, and there were a few, but the overwhelming majority in that room was a sea of green. And it, it, I become emotional when I, when I remember that image. And then there was a standing applause, a standing ovation. Um, uh, those of us who had worked long and hard on that resolution and people who would not, but people, African-Americans, especially who were in that room, found each other. And some of us cried together. Some of us didn't know what to say because we didn't believe that this day would come. It was very powerful. You said that you serve as the co-chair of the Racial Justice Commission Subcommittee on Reparations. And I wanted to share with the audience the written responsibility of the subcommittee. It says, quote, in the name of repentance, for the harm by the enslavement of individuals and systemic racism, provide resources, experiences, and leadership for the diocese, its congregations, and its Episcopal communities as we take action to one, change or retell our own histories and present day story, and two, make financial reparations. Can you tell us your role on that committee now that this is passed, now that the committee uh, has this resolution? Well, we have the resolution, but now we have to put, um, we need to uh, put substance to it. And the, the, uh, the very um, first part of a piece of our work is to um, develop the, the framework for the governing body, the governing body who will actually make, de make decisions about um, what form reparations will take, what the focus will be, and for whom. We, um, the res in the resolution that passed um, last year, we um, noted that people who are of African-American descent and people who are Afro-Caribbean descent. So we've made that decision. We also have made a decision that we want the impact to have a systemic impact to begin to redress and repair the harm that was done. Um, it's a beginning, it's a start. 
And so um, the other thing that we um, are doing in terms of putting the framework together is that this body will um, need to be responsible for not only how we administer the funds, but to be accountable um, to the, the, uh, the diocese. And just as importantly to the communities um, who will be on the receiving end. We feel a, a, an accountability to them um, as well. So that is, we, we're doing other things. We're making sure that we continue to engage congregations in a conversation about the resolution. But we also, that, that is the major focus of our work during this year. Dane, I saw you shaking your head. Was there anything you wanted to add? No, no, no. I'm just <laughs> sitting here in amazement as, at what they've accomplished and how much Constance has been working on it. <laughs> I wanted to pose, and this either one of you can answer these questions. Um, one of this, one of my students wanted to know uh, what have you learned about wealth that's important for Black families to know. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I've learned anything from this experience, but the other day I, I, I'm, I'm reading as much as I can and listening as much as I can to learn about reparations and what other people are doing and what other people are thinking. Many dioceses, for example, in, in the Episcopal Church um, have been doing the work, the kind of work that the Diocese of Massachusetts has done. And I, I want to say this, I didn't say this at the beginning. Um, we worked really hard to put that resolution together. It, it passed in large part because of the support of our bishop. And I, 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 I want people to know that you need the support of leadership as well as the people um, in the pew. So um, I, 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 I want to note that. So one of the things that I was listening to the other day as um, and they were talking about should reparations be, money be used for education, for scholarships, for example, or for housing. And the conversation sort of tended to veer more in the direction of wealth uh, and noted that there is a huge wealth gap and it continues. There continues to be a huge wealth gap in this nation um, when it comes to African-Americans, even those who are college educated and very well college educated, we are still, there's that, that gap. And so the question that it raises for me, I, I'm not giving you an answer to the question um, in terms of, the, but, but what it has raised for me is the question of what do we need to do in order to narrow that wage gap as we think about reparations, should that be part of reparations? Should it be part of something else? And I think we need to explore that. Tracy, I think it's also very important that white people do the work to understand why that wealth gap exists. The US government for centuries has created situations, written laws to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for slaves and then descendants of slaves to gain wealth. Um, the GI Bill for one thing, most African-American GIs did not have access because of uh, very specific 
uh, prejudice and racism to the funds that were available to the white GIs. Um, the Homestead Act back in the 1850s and 60s, when land was being given away to people in the Midwest, it was very difficult for freed slaves or free men um, to get any of that land. And those are the things that created generational wealth. And so African-Americans, um, slaves, descendants of slaves did not have access to those opportunities. And that's just, that's so important. I think one of the key words you said, uh, Constance, was systemic, that this wasn't a matter of African-American self-selection. That's right the equation of wealth, but that it was a systemic um, a kind of uh, approach uh, to, to make sure that African-Americans didn't have access to wealth. And when you have land and housing in a house, you know, you talk about the GI Bill, you know, while many GIs were buying homes, many of those who were African-Americans were then funneled into uh, public housing. That's right, that's right. It, they would get no equity and live for generations in, in public housing, but have no intergenerational wealth either through the land because they didn't own the land that they lived on. And they didn't own the, the resident that they lived in. Right. So you had cycles and, 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 and cycles and years of the lack of generational wealth and being outside of that equation. So, no, that's so important. Oh, one question I wanted to ask you also is um, in conducting your workshops, you must deal with a lot of anger, um, both from those who do not want you to talk about this issue of slavery. I know you were just in the state of Florida, uh, but also anger from those who are just the descendants of slavery. And this is a very you know, hurtful history. And how do you respond to that anger? You know, Where is the space for that? Uh, what are the strategies that you use uh, to engage that anger in, in your workshops? I think that one of the things that Dane and I do um, by our presence, our physical presence, the words we use, the tone of voice that we use, we work to set to create a safe and brave space. It is, it takes bravery for people to share their feelings and their stories, which is what we invite them to do during these screenings. When people are expressing their feelings, you can feel the pain, feel the anger, but people thus far, and we've screened the film over 500 times all over the country, they do it respectfully and they do it listening to what the others have to say. There's space. It's important that we create a space for people to say what's on their mind, to say what's on their heart without arguing or debating or placing blame or shaming. That's the platform upon which we work. And so although people may have the feelings and do have feelings of anger, it doesn't come out in a way that creates controversy in the screenings that we do. And, did you want to and, and 
the few times where that has happened, it's our, our job, and it can be very difficult, is to simply absorb it and acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, we, we don't debate it. We don't let anyone else debate it. Uh, we thank people for their comment and go to the next person. Um, but it, at, at, at times, it's we, we've talked about this. Constance says she's, what, what's the word you use, a receptacle um, for the comments that are made. I see myself as being a conduit for the comments that are made. So Constance tends to hold them. I tend to let them pass through. Um, and this is where, you know, I, I said earlier that um, for me, my faith, my faith plays plays a big role in this. And and um, we are all carrying the burden of this history in one way or the other, either as people who were enslaved or as people of color. It, not just African-Americans, but people of color also are on the receiving end of issues around race and racism. And through these screenings, we have learned through the emotions that people share and the stories they share, they too are affected in different ways. We're impacted in different ways, but we all need to be able to have an opportunity to say what's on our minds, to say what's on our hearts in a way that is safe and brave and make room for it. And we believe that that is, that is our way for beginning to break down the barriers that, that continue to divide us. And thus far, Tracy, <laughs> it has been, um, thus far people have been appreciative of those opportunities. And one of the things we emphasize is so often when African-Americans speak about their experience, white folks have real difficulty hearing it and feeling it and understanding it. And that creates one of the great gaps in the communication that we have between each other. Um, and we try to create that space where white folks will intentionally be sacredly listening. And we use that term, even if we're in, in a high school, we'll say sacredly listen um, to what the other person is saying. It's important that we have an opportunity to say what we feel and also know that what we are saying is being heard. And say a little more, what do you mean by sacred listening? I said it. Not okay, you. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, listening with an open heart and an open mind. And it's the open heart, I think, that is the sacred part of it. Um, and, and for those people who are people of faith, it's got a very different definition, um, means something much deeper for them. Um, but but and, and we use the term open heart and open mind frequently as we get into having the conversation. I would add to what Dana said. Um, 
listen not only with your ears, and we say this during the screening, listen not only with your ears, listen with your heart. And with your heart, when you're listening with your heart, we believe that you're listening with your humanity. So if you're not a person of faith, listening with your humanity, hopefully will take people to a place of, we're all human. We look different. Our cultures are different, but we're human beings. And if we can connect to each other as human beings, even if it's for that brief three hour period that people are together, if we can just for a moment, when you're listening to someone's story, imagine yourself in that person's shoes. Imagine the feeling. You're connecting with their humanity. And if we can just do that and do that more often, maybe, maybe again, we can be able to, we'll be able to break through. One of the things that you and Dane do is that you provide space for these conversations. We really don't have a lot of space uh, in our country that we create to have these difficult conversations about our history, about uh, slavery, about race, uh, about the impact that it has had on us today, uh, about the about the connection between the violence we saw many centuries ago and the violence that we still see now today in our culture. You know, very little space for us to have those deep, open, and honest dialogues. I, I'd like to say that there's an umbilical cord that connects slavery with, with what's going on in our inner cities today. And we have not yet found out how to cut that cord so that one doesn't nourish the other. Our national challenge is how do we cut that cord so that the that that painful, that horrifying history of the past um, can become something else. And I would say beyond the inner city, yeah. it's it's yeah. it's nationwide. It yeah. has it has been from the beginning, and it, and it continues to be. And 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 if people think that they're living in a safe haven place where this doesn't happen, it does. It's everywhere. It it has permeated our culture. Um, and and our life and and again, it affects every single one of us. The the stories, the feelings, the laments that we hear people across all races in the screening sessions that we do. You can close your eyes and just listen to the feeling words and not know whether it is a person of color or a person who is white is saying it. When they tell their stories, you're probably able to guess, but the emotion that we are all carrying deep inside of us. So for those who might be uh, in our audience who might want to just have those three hours of a screening with you, what would you say the goal is that you have in these three hour screenings and workshops? to open people's minds to something that they haven't taken the time to be aware of. And I'm, I'm specifically referring to white people there. 
Um, white people, we, we all, both races, all races have to do this work, but white people have got so much more work that we have to do. And I've, I've lived through that. I, I've, I'm an example of still being on that journey of learning because it's a, it's a forever journey for us white folks. We, we don't know what we don't know with regard to race. And it's important that we take the time to, to learn and to understand the slings and arrows and the multi-generational trauma that particularly African-Americans, but all people of color live through in this country. Um, and that, that multi-generational trauma is, is very significant. And the ignorance of white folks towards it is very significant. My takeaway would be, if I can use a quote um, that I share at the, uh, at the start of all of our screenings, and this quote is from Kierkegaard, who was a philosopher and a theologian. We live our life by moving forward, but we understand our life by looking back. We live our life by moving forward, but we understand our life by looking back. I hope a takeaway is to realize that in order for us to understand, to begin to understand why we are where we are in this nation with regard to race and racism, that we must look back. We must look back at that history. And our hope, my hope, is that with creating the kind of environment that Dane and I work to create with the help of the audience, that we're cre creating a safe and brave space for people to be able to look back so that we can together move forward. What, one of the major goals that Katrina had in making the film was to tell the truth. Um, the country has been lied to. Um, very, very few people in America understand, no that New England was deeply involved, not only in the slave trade, but people were enslaved here in New England for over 200 years. That's important for us to know. Um, and, and there is pushback now um, on trying to stop that effort of learning to tell the truth about our past. And, and, and I, I said this earlier, but until we're able to look at and know and understand that past, we can't heal as a nation. Cousin Tom likes to say it's like having, having a wound on your arm and pulling the bandage off to give it some fresh air. Um, very much, we, we need fresh air in, in our national history of fresh air of truth. In the subtitle to Traces, your cousin Katrina talks about the deep north. And I think that's that's a very much important kind of metaphor to understand that that the north was very much you know, involved in, in, uh, in the slave trade and in this exercise of slavery. Um, and one of the things that is happening here at Harvard is that we are acknowledging that history of what it meant to be Harvard University in the deep north. 
and hallelujah, that's important work and setting an important example. We are at time, so I'm going to invite our our co-host to come back because we'd like to hear uh, from our audience and and have some questions. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you all three of you immensely for this incredibly rich and challenging and provocative conversation. You've just really opened the door to so many different avenues um, that, uh, and there's excellent questions here that I'll, that we will return to momentarily. I just wanna say, um, Professor Hucks asked, that we start the questioning and she asked that we begin with you, Dane. So that's why I'm, <laughs> I just wanna be clear, that's why I'm jumping in here. Um, and I have I have a really important question to ask you. I'm so grateful for your, for your witness. Um, so you've spoken incredibly eloquently about the consequences and the terrible uh, traumas of the legacies of slavery relevant to descendants of slaves and the and the important work for white people such as myself and you to be attentive to that devastating history i i, I couldn't agree more um, i also wonder can you please reflect on the consequence of that history for white privilege that continues and the and what 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 are the responsibilities of those of us even even if we don't have uh, descendants of slave owners, I I don't personally have that. I have a different background, but I still benefit immensely and have all my life, and my family has benefited immensely from white privilege. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that dimension of the work that you do relevant to white people. What does it mean for us to be attentive to that, and then to the extent that you uh, would want to reflect further on the question of what are what are our accountabilities if it's not necessarily reparations, although you might want to reflect further on that. Uh, what is the what is the critical work that you hope that um, you'll be inspiring people like me to do relevant to the work that you're engaged in? Thank you for that question. It's it's a critically important one. White privilege is, I believe, one of the most difficult and important concepts for white people to come to understand. Um, Professor Peggy McIntosh at Wellesley wrote a superb article entitled Unpacking Your Invisible Knapsack um, that deeply gets into white privilege. I had to read that article five times before I finally got it. Um, I, because of the way people are interpreting the term white privilege, um, they see it as being privilege. I prefer to use the term white advantage. We have an advantage because of our white skin. Uh, we have a privilege because of our white skin, because of the advantage that we get because of it. G give a very, very quick example. We did a screening for a 45 high school sophomores here in Massachusetts a number of years ago. And Constance, I, I talked a little bit about white privilege. 
there was a white girl who leapt up. She didn't raise her hand. She leapt up and said, what are you talking about, white privilege? I've got no privilege. I live in a trailer park. My family has never had privilege. And that's where a lot of white folks go. Constance then talked about being in a clothing store that we would all recognize the name of here in Boston, and someone followed her around the store, and she told that story. A Black girl student in the audience raised her hand and said, the same thing just happened to me and my mother the other day. She was sitting right next to the white girl who had jumped up. The white girl looked at her, they were friends, looked at her and said, oh my God, you never told me that. Now I understand. Now I understand. I never get followed in a store. Constance does. That's white privilege. And it's very important that we get in touch with that and what that means to us. Well, I think you're right that the consciousness about that is is so key. And then and then for me, that just really raises the the, the really critical challenge of um, what to what to do with that privilege. And and that that for me, and I, I want to thank you for the work you're doing, but uh, I do think that uh, that we as white people have particular responsibilities. Uh, to be speaking as often as we can and in the circles that we travel uh, to raise these questions and to reckon with this uh, with this legacy, the legacies of the privileges that we uh, are privileged. Well, I didn't want to say privileged that we that we that is that is the legacy for us of this wretched and horrible history. Thank you. And I just wanted to thank you for that question, uh, Diane, because. We have to understand that intergenerational wealth is not, uh, we can't separate it from intergenerational whiteness in this country. Right. These two are, are seamlessly intertwined historically in this country. If, if Absolutely. I, may, I, may I add two things? Please. To this, um, that I would say that it's important. I, I hope that more people who are white become more aware to learn. Dane mentioned, there's a lot of this history. I can't tell you how many times when we do these screenings, teachers, history teachers say, I didn't know this history. And so it's really important that we read, we learn, we listen to each other. And when a person of color tells you about their life, their lived experience, to just listen and for one second, Listen with, with your humanity and not push back that can't be true because it's not true for you, perhaps, because it's not part of your lived experience as people who are white. The other thing that I would say is to speak up and speak out and to show up as allies and not just for a minute, but for the long haul. This is a journey. It took us hundreds of years to get into this situation. Unfortunately, it's going to take us a long time to get out. And to realize also the last thing that I would say, 
we all have a collective role here. And I, 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 I implore people who are white to not do this work, this justice work, this racial justice work for people who look like me, but to do it for themselves because it is the right thing to do. And, and I'd like to piggyback on something Constance said a couple of minutes ago. Um, many of the people watching this are ordained. They're, they're pastors, rectors, they have parishes. It is critically important that if you're not already doing it, you muster up the courage to preach about race and and use opportunities that you find in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, to teach about the healing of what I keep referring to as this national wound. We constantly hear from, from priests as we go around, and about 40% of all of the screenings we've done have been in, in faith institutions of one sort or another. But priests saying, I'm afraid to, to preach about this. I'm afraid people will get up and walk out. I'm afraid that my stewardship will go down. I'm afraid that I'll get fired. And I don't know how to. And, 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 and I don't know how to do it. Um, find a group of people you can work with and work on how to do it. It's so critically important that our pulpits in this nation talk about this frequently and not, not on Martin Luther King Sunday, not during Black History Month, but at times that are unexpected. Thank you so much, uh, Dane and Constance, because this is um, connected to the question I actually have for you. I, I just appreciate all that you have shared and I appreciate uh, Tracy's um, questions and, and how she has framed this conversation because it's really a powerful illustration of the practical work that's happening uh, and particularly in the church. So Constance, I loved hearing you talk about the resolution from the Episcopal Church, um, the diocese and the work that the reparations subcommittee did and how the resolution was overwhelmingly voted for favorably. And I know that that, just, that doesn't just happen overnight. So connected to what Dane just said, the charge that he just gave to you know, faith communities and leaders who are watching this and the work that they need to do in their churches, can you say a little bit more about the preparatory work, the work to prepare the communities to vote favorably for that resolution? How were the, how were the communities, how were the churches prepared? How were the people prepared to actually get to the point where they could say, yes, we are in favor of this resolution. And then now to then go on to do the work of implementation. What was some of the preparation involved? We have been on this journey in the diocese for a while. And specifically uh, two years ago, a resolution was passed um, at diocesan convention that called on our uh, diocese and congregations to um, research their history, to learn more, study more, so that we have a they would get a better sense of um, the slave trade, slavery, um, 
what impact did that have on the congregation in your in your town, in your city, in your community? So it was it began by learning more about your history and using that information as a as a as a basis. Last year, we did a series of what we called um, listening gatherings across the diocese on the various regions of the diocese, inviting anyone in the diocese to come and share and answer this question. When you hear the word reparations, what thoughts, what concerns, what feelings, what questions do you have? And we intentionally refer to it as listening gatherings. We prepared a statement that reminded people of the resolution that we were working toward, reminded people that it was listening, reminded people that there would not be, we would not answer their questions, their questions would be recorded. Um, and we would take that information to help us gauge um, what concerns people had, what questions they would have, um, uh, recommendations, what kind of recommendations would they make? And so we then used that information to help us uh, winnow down uh, more narrowly, um, not so much the, the specifics, because at this point, we still don't know whether we want to use money for education or housing or healthcare, that's not the, our role. That's the role of the governing body. But it began to help us get a sense of um, what was on people's minds and what, were on, what was on people's hearts. We know that there are people who may not support this. We know. And we know we've got a lot of work to do. So to that end, also uh, last year, we put together a toolkit. And it's a document that it invites a resource that invites congregations in the diocese um, to use that toolkit in um, uh, learning how to begin to have a conversation about race and racism. Um, start wherever your congregation is. Some congregations have had these conversations for a while. Some have never had them. Some don't think we have a problem because their congregation may be predominantly white or they may be um, in, in communities that are largely white and very few people of color, very few people of African descent. So we have, we have given a resource to congregations to use wherever they are on the journey, because we're not all in the same place. Wherever you are in this journey, use this toolkit to help engage the people in your congregation to have this conversation. And then the last thing that we're doing is that there are um, members of our reparations subcommittee who have started going out to various congregations who want to learn more. So we're still very much, very much on a path of, of, of learning and, and discovery and educating ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for those clear um, um, action steps that people can then take and apply in their own settings. Thank you so much.
Yes, I, I want to also thank you. And I just want to say, just to expand it, I think that anyone in the room, anyone in the on the on the webinar can can uh, invite and and lead uh, those kinds of conversations in whatever communities they're part of. They certainly can be relevant to religious communities, but this the work you're doing in terms of just even raising the questions, um, I think is so critical. And that seems to me the work for us, again, as a, as a white person, that we need to be doing that in, in the communities that we, that we travel. Um, so thank you. I, I, there, there are a couple of questions here and uh, uh, relevant to reparations. And I think it would be really helpful. We've got one anonymous question from, the, uh, from one participant who uh, would like you uh, to, Dane and Constance, offer a few more general concepts on reparations and how they might work. Uh, and then the, and then circling back and then Reverend uh, Kevin Ross, who was highlighted earlier, also has, I think, a really important question uh, around the symbolism or the action of what it means for you, Dane, uh, with a family legacy of that to, to, um, to think relevant to that family legacy. Reparations is a complicated question. I just wanna, I just wanna acknowledge that. Uh, but I think that one of the fundamental questions that we're wrestling with here at, at the Divinity School uh, is what does it mean to take them seriously, particularly given that we know that we, all of us who are, have anything to do with the Divinity School are again, reaping the benefits of, of stolen labor. And what does it mean to take that really seriously in very concrete ways? And I just wonder, again, I know it's a difficult question, but if you two could just kind of reflect on your own thinking about reparations, uh, its challenges, but also potentially its possibilities, I think people in the audience would be really grateful. Do you wanna? Sure. sure. Um, I tend to, lean towards the word repair. I think it gives a better understanding of what needs to be done. We need to repair the damage. Um, and there are many ways that that can be done. Um, we, we've talked about education. We've talked about housing. Employment is a key area, a key area. Um, voting rights, is a key area. Um, th th there are so many areas that are that are so important. Um, but reparations is not a, I, I don't believe, a short-term one-time thing. It's something that has to happen, unfortunately, over a long, long period of time, which means many people alive today are not going to receive the benefits from it, and that that's that's painful and it's tragic. Um, but it, it, I, I don't see a way that that that's going to happen. One of the um, one of the well, let me say a couple of things. Um, some of us on a, another task force that I um, sat on looking at the notion of reparations, we were asked to share our feelings and thoughts about reparations. Those of us, I think I'm not in this uh, rep speaking here. I will use an I statement. I have known 
people, I think Conyers, Representative Conyers, for decades tried to get Congress to have begin to have a conversation about, just hold hearings. HR 40. HR 40 to have, begin to have a conversation on reparations. Not what it is, but just to begin to talk about it, to use the word reparations. It never happened. And so when I was given the opportunity to share my feelings and thoughts about reparations, I was stymied because I had never thought about it. I didn't expect that it would happen. When I was forced to think about it because my work <laughs> um, before I retired was about systemic change, I am thinking big picture. This is not about, and, and this is my own personal feeling, but it is also the sentiment in our, in our diocese that we also, and I think it's reflected in the language in our resolution, it is systemic. It is not individually based in terms of writing a check for individuals. Individuals will, be, will, will benefit, we hope, by what is done. But we are looking, and I am looking, at systemic change that will have an impact over time to redress as best we can as best we can, and to begin to repair some of the damage that was done in those communities where the people who are the most affected, the most harmed by, by this history of, of, of enslavement and slave trade will be the beneficiaries. However, I want to say that in, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, the, the book, The Sum of Us, Heather um, McGee, Heather McGee um, that we are all, there is, this is not a zero sum game. We will all benefit, all benefit. Because if we're talking about, about, about reparations that will have an impact, positive impact in marginal communities, these communities are not just made up of African-Americans. They're not just made up of people of color. They're also made up of people who are white. And, and if we look at it as a systemic and as a whole, wouldn't it be wonderful if every community in Massachusetts could herald their, their school and their education system as being the best? Doesn't that, doesn't that bode well for all of us, not just African-Americans? but for all of us. Thank you, Constance and Dane. Um, and Dane, you, this is so, this is such a powerful conversation. And Dane, you started the conversation by speaking very clearly and firmly about what white people need to do to uncover the history, to learn history, to, to, to reckon with the truth. So I wanna offer a question from Hunter Limbaugh who asked you specifically, uh, Hunter says, Dane, as a fellow white Southern, uh, as a fellow white South Carolinian, I'd love to hear your suggestions as how to get our friends, neighbors, and others to understand our responsibility, to know our real history, and our responsibility to participate in the uh, morally necessary reparative work. How do you overcome the reflexive resistance to the truth of our responsibility? So if you could 
uh, highlight some, maybe some of the examples, but this is really hard work. And, and, and unless a groundswell of white folks get behind this, there will be no reparative action. So it's really important to, to, to hang out in this area for a little bit. So Dame, what do you have to say? There is no magic formula. <laughs> um, it's one person at a time and it takes time. If you have someone who was resistant or someone who was out and out blatantly, someone who's out and out blatantly racist, they probably will never change because that is so deep in their psyche. Um, but for someone who you think might be willing to open up a little bit, that there's a superb book um, that I, I consider um, Racism 101. It's, it's the foundational book in, in my mind. Um, it, it's called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. Um, she does a magnificent job of telling her own story of waking up to the fact that she was white, she is white, and that that gives her very distinct advantage over other people. Um, and she deals with it in short chapters. Um, it, it's not threatening. It's not finger pointing. It's not shaking a finger at people. It's just telling her story. And we, we use the book um, for book study groups and find that um, it, it can really open very subtly a lot of eyes. So if you have someone who's willing to take that step, I think you've got them at that point. Um, but the people who are real resistant, um, that, that, that's a tough nut. That, that, that becomes a generational problem, I think. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, we'd like to just turn uh, to you, Professor Hux, just for some final reflections. Um, and just to po I'll post maybe two questions. You can choose what, which one you want to respond to. Uh, one would just be if you have any comments to make relevant to the conversation tonight uh, to help help us position ourselves from your from your own work as a scholar of religion and the others a little more general, what uh, insights do you think the study of religion provides for us unique, unique potential, potentially unique insights that the study of religion provides for us to really unpack these systemic issues that we're uh, discussing this evening. So either one of those, but uh, turn it to you for, for final comments, please. I mean, I'll go back to where I started with with a scholar of religion, historian of religions, uh, Charles Long, who really wants, wants to, when he was alive, whose work really helped us to, to theorize and to think about and rethink the kind of history that we want to tell of, of Christianity, to, to rethink the, the connections between religion, slavery, and modernity. For me, it's it's a wonderful time to be at the Harvard Divinity School, having these conversations in our classes, but very much from a leadership on committed to unearthing what it means for the study of religion to have been allied to a legacy of slavery. You know, what does it mean when we talk about the way in which we interpret uh, the Bible, 
What does it mean that we have created theologies and theological anthropologies that, uh, that denigrated blackness? And what does it mean that we had histories, histories that created a sense of what Dr. Long calls opacity, where some people become uh, invisible in this story of, of the modern West, of, of, um, of modernity. Uh, I think we have, and also, you know, this is always and will always be a moral and ethical question. And I'm hoping for all of the institutions that are here, that the one that I'm connected to will be at the forefront of wanting to make those challenges, to take the courage to say the things that need to be said, to be in the leadership for what it means to, to talk about these very difficult issues and also what it means for us to, I, I love that sense, Constance, you talk about our humanity. How do we really realize our humanity in this country? And I'm hoping that me, my colleagues, the study of religion will be at the forefront of that. You know, James Baldwin, who I taught, I teach a course called the Book of Baldwin. And those of you who read the fire next time, he's very clear that if your God cannot make you more freer, more loving, more full, then it's time you get rid of him. And we want to be about a conversation that really begins to free us uh, from so many of the prisons of race in this history that have entrapped us in the United States and throughout the African diaspora. So thank, thank you. you. I want to thank Dane and Constance uh, again for just joining us. And thank you on behalf of Harvard Divinity School. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And and thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for the work you're doing. And thanks to all of the people who are joining in tonight um, for taking the time and effort to um, to listen to this. Um, and I'd, I'd like to say one last thing, and that is that there is no better place than faith communities to have this conversation. Just wanted to just wanted to echo my gratitude to all of you. Thank you so much, Tracy, Dane, and Constance, for this powerful conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. And I will uh, close this out with a, a deepest gratitude and thanks on behalf of all of us at the Divinity School for this rich conversation. We to let everyone in the room know that this has been recorded and it will this the session will be available on our website in the coming days. I also hope that you will all join us for our sixth and last session that'll take place two weeks from tonight on the 20th at seven o'clock. And it will feature professors King, Holland, McCannon, Johnson, and Hux for a plenary conversation about the power of religion uh, and the legacies of slavery to, to give a, an overview of what we've learned and think about um, steps forward. I just wanna, close to just again remind you what Melissa helped remind us about in the beginning, that these are important and challenging conversations and that we wanna encourage everyone in the room to carry forward what you have learned here, bring it into your communities, bring it into your conversations. And particularly to the extent that this has been a difficult conversation to make sure to reach out to beloveds uh, for support and for processing. We thank you again and look forward to seeing you all in two weeks time. Good night. Good night. Good night. And Diana, 
the, the, the light had gone out in my office to let me know the ancestors are here. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you all. Sponsors, Religion and Public Life, the HDS Office of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging, the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Initiative, Harvard X. Copyright 2023, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.